Here's a message from today's episode's sponsor. Insulet, makers of Omnipod, are proud to partner with the Pharmacy Podcast Network to support the 2023 APHA Annual Meeting and Exhibition. The Omnipod 5 Automated Insulin Delivery AIDS System is indicated for people with type 1 diabetes ages 2 years and older. Omnipod 5 is the first and only tubeless aid system in the United States that is exclusively available in the pharmacy. The Omnipod 5 combines a tubeless, waterproof, wearable pod that integrates with Dexcom G6 CGM to automatically adjust insulin based on glucose trends every five minutes. Visit the Omnipod team at booth 216 to learn more about this innovative technology. Disclaimers, the pod has an IP28 rating for up to 25 feet for 60 minutes. The Omnipod 5 controller is not waterproof. The Dexcom G6 is sold separately and requires a separate prescription. Visit omnipod.com safety for additional important safety information. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to The Pain Pod, the podcast for all things pain management, hosted by the pain guy, Dr. Mark Grofoli. We'll be collaborating with numerous pain management experts, talking about substance usage disorders, the latest treatment modalities, and most important, important. focusing on the pain of our patients as leading providers of pain care. And now, here's our host, a man wanted in all 50 states, a suburban city-like mountain man, without the beard, from the hills of West Virginia, and certified in weapons of mass destruction response, it's Dr. Mark Garofoli. All right, welcome back, everyone, to the Pain Pod. As we always say, come one, come all to the Pain Pod. So I, I, I'm just going to be frank. I'm pretty stoked about today's episode here, uh, this discussion. Uh, just, you know, sometimes things just hit home more uh, with with uh, colleagues, friends, people you know, and all that. So uh, if, you, if you're using your seat, just go to the edge right now. We're gonna, it's going to work out a lot better if you just sit on the edge because this, this is where this conversation is going to go. Okay. All right. So pain pod. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, there's, there's, a you know, the often blurred lines between pain, pain management and substance use disorder addiction, uh, there, there, that's a whole conversation six to eight to 40 hours in itself. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, outside of that, perhaps indirectly involved though, uh, we've got a lot going on in our country when it comes to substance related overdose deaths. Uh, or just deaths, uh, you know, in general. Uh, so when it comes to substance-related deaths, uh, of course, the the headlines, the topics, the conversations are always, always concentrating on, let's just say drugs, whether it's substances of abuse, illegal drugs, illegal substances, whatever we're going with. Um, you know, uh, it, it's been a while now where we've, we've gone over the six figures, okay? Over 100,000 Americans a year die 
uh, with uh, substance-related deaths. But in the background, uh, we've got the ATF, and we're not here to talk about firearms, uh, but the A and the T. So alcohol, uh, most recent numbers I've seen, give or take, of course, uh, alcohol-related deaths have been about 150,000, whereas tobacco-related uh, deaths, half a million. Uh, I'm sure you're hearing and thinking about those numbers and thinking, wow, alcohol and tobacco are way above, quote-unquote, drugs. And you're absolutely right. And there's a lot to unpackage in that conversation, right? Uh, but no matter what, uh, an American dies every six minutes from a drug overdose in our country. Conversely, a baby is born dependent, don't you dare say addicted, uh, but dependent to opioids specifically every half hour. So that's both spectrums of life, right? So here today, we're going to be jumping into a bunch of topics within this overall realm. And with us, we have Jake Nichols. Uh, who hasn't met Jake? And I'm not talking about Jake from Allstate, if he's even still with Allstate, that other guy, right? Uh, I'm talking about Jake Nichols. So, uh, you know, welcome to the pain pod, Jake. Well, thank you, Mark. Absolute pleasure to be here, my friend. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. Uh, uh, feelings beyond mutual, of course. So as it always is. Um, but seriously, uh, a lot of uh, pharmacists, a lot of doctors, a lot of healthcare professionals, heck, a lot of people on this planet uh, have certainly either, you know, met Jake or heard him speak, uh, perhaps uh, heard about his story. Uh, we all have a story uh, in the end. Uh, but, you know, what, what will we do to impact others with our stories, of course? Uh, and Jake does countless efforts uh, going around our, our country. Uh, quite frankly, I just sum it up as trying to help people, um, you know. But uh, for those of us who haven't read uh, Unfit for Recovery, that is Jake's book that is out now, literally right now, no matter when you're listening to this. I don't care if you're on a treadmill, a bike, if you're driving, please keep eyes on the road. Um, or if you're sitting around on your couch or something, uh, you, could, you, could, you need to get that book if you haven't already. So it's called Unfit for Recovery. But uh, for those of us who haven't read it yet, um, you know, to, to, or heard one of your presentations or, you know, you know uh, Jake, if you give us uh, some insight into you, you know, what's your story, uh, perhaps an appetizer for eventually reading the book, of course. Yeah, sure. So uh, that, that's always a tough question. Where do I start with that one? <laughs> um, so, you know, as a pharmacist, um, you know, I think we we see ourselves as, as being knowledgeable and, and quite frankly, above addiction. Um, I mean, who knows more about medications than we do? Who knows more about controlled substances, opioids than we do? Um, and and that's really the the kind of gist of of what carried me through 15 years of substance use. Um, it really kicked off when I was in pharmacy school, and and you know culminated you know again 15 years later in 2010 with 513 felony charges, the end of my marriage, bankruptcy. Uh, loss of my pharmacy license and, and entry into treatment and ultimately, you know, a career in this field. Um, and, you know, it, it's been quite a journey. Um, and, and the book itself, you know, outlines that journey. But the, the book really started as kind of a self-examination. Um, and it, what really kicked it off was in late 2020, I had an unfortunate series of events, as we like to say. Um, where, you know, I lost my job. Um, I was uh, engaged and that relationship ended abruptly uh, without explanation. Um, and we're in the middle of COVID. Um, and it was this period whereby I reflected that, you know, I, I had 10 plus years in recovery and I thought I had it down. Um, I thought there was nothing that could bring me down. And I got to a point where I was facing, you know, a bottle of pills 
um, to go back down that road. And, and it, it really scared me. And, and I didn't go back down that road, no spoiler there, but, um, it, it led me to, to kind of reflect on, you know, how did I get here? Um, you know, how did I get to this point where, um, somebody who grew up in a very supportive, loving family who, who didn't have an injury that, that was, you know, resulted in a prescription for opioids. Um, how did that person end up with a substance use issue? Um, and, and more importantly, you know, what did I do that was able to allow me to achieve recovery, but more so maintain it? Um, and I won't spoil what the exact title of the book means, but, you know, I, I began to question whether or not I was truly fit for recovery. Um, mm -hmm. and, and again, it was, it was more of my journey of digging into that to determine the answer to that question. It, it's a, a, a you very succinctly just went over a lot there, but <laughs> it, it, it's I, I you know I, I typically hesitate to put uh, my name or the proverbial pain guy uh, name on anything, but uh, folks, you, you're you're gonna want to read this one, okay? Um, but anyways, you know, diving uh, maybe too far, but uh, into the book, I, I couldn't help but notice and appreciate uh, it, your book's chapters are organized by movie titles. Okay? Yes. Uh, and, you know, as a guy who did a, a TED talk, a TEDx talk, uh, talking about the cinematic experience related to pain, addiction, and everybody on this planet, I, I couldn't help uh, but just say, I, I love that idea. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, before the time of streaming, I was known to be a bit of a, I'd call it a mark buster. And been ah. called worse, but uh, kind of like Blockbuster, just so we know where we're going there, folks, uh, with DVDs, digital movies, so on and so forth. But um, going a little bit lighter here, but, you know, there was a lot of movies mentioned there. Lots of chapters, right? Yeah. Um, so what's your what's your favorite movie? And and I got to ask why. Yeah, well, that, that's a very deep question. That's that's one of the deepest ones I've been asked in a long time, to be honest. Um, but the answer is, has been the same for as long as I can remember. It's The Empire Strikes Back. Um, and, and beyond being a massive Star Wars fan, I think my love of that movie um, and the meaning behind it has interestingly evolved over the years. And, you know, to be clear, um, I like to remind both of us that we're not that old, but uh, I was four <laughs> years old when that movie came out. And it's one of the first cinematic experiences I can remember in a movie theater. Um, and I probably didn't see it when I was four, but at some point, you know, it's re-released many times over the years, but right, right. just my love of that medium being in a, in a, in a, a place where everything outside is closed out, you're engulfed in this amazing cinematic experience with, with, you know, visual and, and auditory. It just, there's nothing else in this earth that can that I can I can do or engage in that kind of closes everything out. You know, for me to be in, enveloped in a movie for a period of two hours is is a really satisfying and, and joyous experience. And I think with The Empire Strikes Back, you know, it's one of the earliest memories of my childhood. Um, and and again, just the the joyous nature of childhood and and you know not having a care in the world and you know again thinking of the innocence of that time, but. Again, as, as time has gone on, you know, as it, it has evolved, you know, I tell people it's one of the most realistic movies in terms of plot lines, um, meaning, you know, the characters undergo some really serious challenges um, to the point where the end of the movie ends on uh, almost a down note for the most part. You know, Luke's lost his hand. He finds out his father's the biggest villain in the galaxy. 
Um, you know, his his team, the Rebel Alliance, is, is kind of down. They just took away his best friend, encased in carbonite. But it somehow manages to end the movie on a hopeful note. Just mm-hmm. that scene at the end where they're standing there, they're looking out into the galaxy there. They're not overtly smiling, but, you know, there's kind of like this, all right, we got this. You know, this seems like this is insurmountable, um, but there's hope. Um, and that obviously translates a lot into, you know, my messages and a lot of the messages in the book as well. How wonderfully put. Good golly. I'm feeling slightly inadequate here. My my yeah. first uh, movie that I saw in the cinema was E.T. You know, E.T. Yeah. goes home. Uh, and I know I had my little uh, stuffed animal E.T. And my mom, mom took me and, you know, reminds me of it to this day. And yeah. Um, I, I, I thank her for that. Of course, Lord knows, uh, pain guy's mom has certainly listened to every one of these episodes. So thanks mom. Uh, but the, uh, you know, it's interesting when folks think, uh, there's a couple of questions I always ask pain podcasts and, uh, a movie is not typically one of them, but, uh, you know, my favorites, Rocky four, I'm sure many have heard that before. And uh, it's not because, you know, this fake character into the cold war or something, but the, the never give up idea too. So, yeah. Uh, but it's interesting, the messaging that we get. And then as you uh, eloquently put that uh, cinematic experience, the escape, it it overlaps with a lot of other stuff that uh, we're talking about here today, really, of of uh, life, good, bad, in the middle, whatever. We all look for that escape. So. All right. So. um so pivoting back to to uh, you know you basically so uh, uh, you know you've, you've got uh, uh, quite the career uh, in healthcare and pharmacy of course but um, if if you would say you know in thinking about this if your pharmacy career path never pivoted you know based on experiences uh, where do you think you'd be you know hospital pharmacy community managed care industry whatever what, what take a time machine where where would you be you think. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is a, a, a great question. It's one that I reflect upon a lot when I talk to students who, who you know, they're, they're curious about your career path. And, you know, you, you, I'm sure you get this. How do I get to do what you get to do? You know, oh, what yeah. do I need to do to, to get there? <laughs> um, and my answer is, is, you know, jokingly, well, you have to become a drug addict and, you know, destroy your marriage and go through bankruptcy. <laughs> and, you know, some of them look at me like I'm half serious, but obviously you're in headlights much <laughs> yeah, slightly, slightly. And, and to be clear, as a disclaimer, you do not have to do that. Um, but you know, for me, it was, it was an evolution mark. Honestly, it was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I came into pharmacy because my best friend's dad, who I consider, you know, as important as my own father, um, in kind of, you know, um, having an influence on my life as, as a mentor, as, as somebody I just looked up to and, you know, having a community pharmacy in our town, you know, here in Natick, Massachusetts, and um, just the relationship he had with the community. And, and that's what I wanted. Um, and, and that's what initially drew me to pharmacy. And, and you know, I, I came in also at a time where we were transitioning to all PharmD and um, the quote unquote clinical role of a pharmacist was really expanding. And, and I think more importantly, being recognized. I mean, it's always been there, mm-hmm. uh, but being formally recognized and embraced by other members of the healthcare community. And, you know, I, I ended up in this mix of, of this great kind of clinical community, you know, kind of job where I also got to teach. And I found out that teaching was was one of my primary loves as well. Um, you know, as time progressed and I, and I got into other positions and, you know, I, I kind of built upon that. And, and I think the best way to say it is I kept an open mind. Um, you know, when you're early in your career, you think you have a clear idea of where you want to go and what your career path is. But 
I always kept an open mind and, and where I actually found myself most interested was that kind of intersection between clinical and finance. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, we, we come out of school and we have all these great tools and skills and we, we want to improve health and, and save lives and, and improve people's quality of life. And um, that's all well and good. But if it doesn't work out on the balance sheet, it's not going to happen. Right. Um, and that really intrigued me. And that led me to go and get a, a master's degree in business administration. So I saw myself kind of, you know, keeping my hands in the clinical world because I just I loved the aspects of, of patient care and interacting with folks. And, you know, whether that was in a community pharmacy or in a primary care clinic, it it, it didn't matter for me. I just I loved that that interaction and just being able to be available and, and helpful to people. But Again, I also saw the challenges of healthcare and 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 really just, I guess, accepted the fact that the financial part is going to be just as much a part of it as the clinical pieces. Um, so I was I was kind of pursuing roles that balance that. And, you know, that could have been managed care, that that could have been, you know, administration. Um, but that's really where I saw myself going before, you know, I ended up in treatment for substance use. All good. All good. That, that, um, you know, you brought up the idea. I often contemplate this and even talk about it, particularly with our, our, um, less experienced student pharmacists, uh, med students, everybody within any health sciences campus, of course. But, yeah. um, I know most P1 years and, or I should say most, uh, schools of pharmacy across our country have, uh, you know, a career roundtable or panel or yeah. event or something, whether it's alums coming back or whoever. And I encourage everybody out there to do those things, uh, even for self-reflection, let alone give them back and teach others. But, just about 99.9% of students will walk in thinking, Oh, I'm going to learn what I'm going to do. And yeah. I, like you said, I want to, how'd you get there? I want to do that. Um, and in reality, it's the, the real learning is boy, the possibilities are really endless. Identifying as a pharmacist is like the first question of 1600 exactly. million of them. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. then what? Um, so that's pretty cool in the big picture there too. So all right. So, uh, you know, we, we talked about your, your, your book a little bit there on fit for recovery, um, not to throw opinions out there, but you're an incredible author. So, um, you got a lot in the book, of course, but what doesn't the world know about you or what would you like to share? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, there's a lot. I know we have limited time here. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I think what the world doesn't know is that, you know, there are still struggles. Um, you know, when you, achieve recovery or, or, you know, it doesn't have to be substance use. You, you overcome, you know, a major life issue. We all have them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if we're not having one now, we're going to have one. I hate to break it to you, but, yep. um, you know, when we get past that, it, it kind of allows us to pivot and reset and reflect. Um, and, and, you know, I think my perspectives have obviously changed on a lot of things and, you know, obviously, my love of movies hasn't changed. Um, you know, my my focus on my my kids, my family, you know, are essential. But you know, it, I'm starting to question, you know, where I want to go, you know, within this whole recovery thing. And yeah. you know, we we talk about, you know, how do you spread the word? And and part of you know the purpose of writing the book was to let others know that you know there are other folks out there that are very similar to you that struggle and are able to overcome it. Um, and I think I just want to continue to be able to spread that word. And, and, you know, the answer to the question is, you know, I still struggle, 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and one of the things that kind of hit me last night, you know, especially related to the book and, and something that I really wasn't prepared for, um, and, and surprisingly wasn't prepared for, but, you know, the minute I went public with my own experiences, as you can imagine, you get a lot of people that gravitate to you, or I'm, I'm sure you get it as well, having the expertise in this field. Um, you know, people want to talk to you. They want to share their experience. They want your advice. Um, they want your hope, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it's manageable most of the time. Um, but, you know, there comes periods where it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the time to be able to devote to that is is limited, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And, you know, there is such a thing as compassion fatigue. And, and I really don't want this to come off as as being ungrateful or, you know, saying I'm, I'm not, you know, I can't help people. I'll always do what I can. But I found myself at a point where, you know, I'm struggling with that piece mm-hmm. um, where people are reaching out and I just, I don't have the time to be as responsive as I used to be. Um, and again, it's just a message of you're, you're always struggling with something. Um, and, and that's kind of my, my issue of the day, um, if you will. Well, thank you for admitting that you're human, like the rest of us, right? As far as we know, I mean, it's not easy. Yeah, it's um, there's very few things that occur on this planet that are better than helping people and being there for people. We're all given 24 hours in a day, and we only have so much bandwidth, right? It's, I think people understand that a lot too. But uh, there's, there's, you know, glass half full of everything, but uh, you know, got to keep people's lives in mind there too. Everybody's always dealing with something, so yeah. That's uh, hey, uh, you're famous, so the, these things happen, right? Well, I don't know about famous, maybe infamous, but <laughs> well, all right. So I, I'm going to take a little bit of a, a time travel here. No, no yeah. hot tub included, but okay. Um, I believe not to sound like Brian Adams, but I believe it was the summer of 2015. <laughs> I actually thought about this ahead of time, of course, yeah. but um, that that was actually the the year that I uh, first attended the APHA Addiction Institute. It's yeah. had various names and all that. Uh, and I, I believe I have before, but uh, our audience out there, Pain Pod Nation, uh, let me just put it this way. You must attend. Seriously. Uh, it will make you a better person instantly. Uh, in fact, uh, my wife, Dr. Gretchen Grofley, uh, of course, met me at the, the door when coming home from that uh, conference meeting, get together um, and commented upon my return. It, it, you're a better person for having attended even. Folks, I develop and present more CE than I can count, but I don't believe I've ever had a learning objective of being a better person. Mm. You know, uh, yeah, insert the old teardrop and all that, but I'm being serious here too. So get there, register now. All right. Anyways, so I first believe I first mentioned Jake in Utah. Uh, then we had a follow up meeting uh, in, in, here in Morin Town, Wild and Wonderful, West Virginia. Yeah. Um, you, you were uh, with an industry crew at that time, um, you know, discussing a product, which uh, throughout that simple conversation, presentation, whatever, I realized, dang, this guy's good and uh, he gets it, <laughs> to put it lightly. Uh, you know, going along the idea of avoiding that stinking thinking. That's what uh, the pharmacist, Dan Schneider, of course, yeah. from Netflix, we, we had him here on the pain pod previously, uh, how he put it one time. But year after year, uh, more heartbeats uh, stop due to drug overdoses. Went over the numbers earlier, but it's just incredibly hard to swallow, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, for for all of us healthcare professionals and 
President Self included, and pretty much everybody in society who's ever listening, uh, it's very hard to stop and smell the roses. You know, maybe see the forest and the trees, the fifty thousand foot view, all that stuff. When it when it comes to the reality of our drug crisis, um, you know, whether opioids, uh, illegal ones, prescription ones, uh, the plethora of other illegal drugs, things like hallucinogens, dare I say, cannabis, everything. It's really easy to get lost in the weeds or shuffle, no puns there, of course, but um, you got any recommendations to keep our sanity along the way? Yeah, um, you know, I, th- I think you kind of alluded to it, Mark, honestly, it's 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 being cautious and, and being conscious of where you're at. And, you know, one of the things, you know, again, you'll you'll see this through the threads of the book, but one of the reasons I'm here is because I had people that were in my life around this time where I really wanted to absorb advice and wisdom, I think more importantly, as to how to stay on this path. Um, and and again, my, my therapist, who has now become a very close friend and, and peer, um, you know, one of the early things he told me is, is there's two things you need to understand. You, you can't help everybody and you can't help anyone unless you help yourself first. And he said, you know, recovery, especially early recovery, is the only time in life you're allowed to be selfish. Um, And since then, you know, he's reminded me that where there are times when you are able to reflect and and see that you're just not where you want to be or or you're struggling with something, things need to stop um, and you need to address that. And I think, you know, especially as pharmacists, as healthcare professionals, by nature, we are selfless. Uh, we are empathetic, we are caring, um, and, and, and at times that causes us to neglect our own health and wellness, um, especially for those of you out there in the community settings. It's, it's you know, a big topic in our, our profession right now, and, and the initiative of the current president of National Association of Board of Pharmacy is, is working conditions. Um, and, and I think part of that, you know, falls on the organizations clearly, but I think just as much falls on us um, as individuals. And we really need to stop and take time, as as Mark said, to to smell the roses, um, but more importantly, to reflect on where you're at. And, you know, if there are things you're struggling with, you need to find somebody in life that you can talk to about it. Um, and again, not to to get all, you know, pie in the sky or or cheesy, as we like to say here up, up <laughs> in Boston. But, um, you know, it, it's we need to get past that hesitancy or that reluctance to share how we feel about things. Um, And for me, that was the most rewarding, satisfying, comforting part or skill that I achieved in recovery. Um, And again, it goes well beyond my substance use because it was just not something I was ever able to do. It was not something that my family does well. Um, It's not something that, you know, my generation does well. So the minute we're able to do that, and again, it, it can be, you know, every day or it can be once a week, it can be once a month, but we need to really stop and reflect and, and, and ask ourselves, are we happy? And if we're not happy with whatever aspects that may be, what can we do to improve that? And very small things like that, that may take five to 10 minutes can make an absolute difference, not just on your life, but those around you. So very well put it. It's, um, 
you know, who knew that flight attendants had the keys to the kingdom of, uh, you got to yeah. put your mask on first and, yeah. and the airplane ones, folks, we're not going there. Um, good golly. Um, yeah. to, to a good amount of, uh, listeners out there, um, hit pause, take some action. You know, we all need it. Right. All right. So, um, so you, you, you obviously, uh, you know, uh, shared a lot in your book, um, and various presentations, uh, discussions, uh, all across the country and all that, anything you haven't shared, you'd like to, um, you know, share with us here today, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there were several, you know, as when you write a book and, and especially when you get to the copy editing piece and, you know, just to give you an idea, you know, the, the published version of that book is, is well over 20,000 words less than what my first draft was. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a ton of stuff you want to include. And, and, you know, part of it is is there are certain people you want to be able to acknowledge that contributed so much, but they just may not fit in the story. There's certain experiences um, that, you know, you you went through that just didn't seem to fit in the written word, if that makes sense. And, and um, you know, it, it's you know, there, there are several stories and, you know, as, as we've talked about many times, you know, some of them pop up and, and I was actually out in Tennessee last week and I was uh, in Nashville and I'm um, good friends with a, a guy by the name of Wes Gemmon, who's the chief pharmacy officer for the, uh, the state of Tennessee. And he oversees all the addiction treatment in the, in the state. And I was sitting down with his students and, you know, uh, this episode came to mind of, you know, the insanity of addiction. And and we were talking about this one episode and I realized I, I hadn't brought this up in a long time and I'd certainly not included it in my book. But again, the topic was, you know, how deep did your addiction go? How deep did your substance use go? And, and you know, there was a period, you know, after I got caught um, and, and my crime started to become um, evident and I knew that I was being investigated that, you know, my brain still perceived that it needed substances. And, you know, I knew that all the pharmacies in the area were on to the fact that I was writing fake prescriptions. So, you know, what I did was I threw on some some clothes um, from somebody else in my family that, you know, something I wouldn't wear. Um, I, I put my hair differently and I threw a hat on. And I took some fake prescriptions to a pharmacy that was about, you know, 30 miles away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought by putting on a, a you know, an act and, a, and believe it or not, using a Southern accent um, that I was would be able to convince this pharmacist that I had just moved to the area. I had two kids that had ADD and I had to fill these prescriptions for Ritalin. And of course, I threw some clonidine in there to think that that would, you know, mm-hmm. normalize this and. No, and and instantly again, you you look back on these things, and it's it's absolutely crazy. But it it really captures you know how deep the addiction was. Again, I know the DEA was investigating me, the state police and local police were involved, and I'm still trying to fa- pass phony prescriptions, you know, in a pharmacy that's really not that far away. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know the as soon as I saw the pharmacist take the prescriptions and go back and and get on the telephone, I bolted. Um, and I remember just sprinting and as I'm running to my car, I'm, I'm, you know, abandoning these clothes that I'm wearing and, and it's okay to laugh at this, please. This is just insane. It's like a scene out of a Hollywood movie. It really is. And and this, I'm not embellishing this in any way, but I'm throwing the clothes off thinking, okay, they won't know the clothes. And, you know, I hop in my car and I speed away and 
I'm literally trying to take all these back roads to get home and I'm stopping at certain places so that, you know, throw the car, you, your brain just goes crazy. Um, and, you know, you reflect on that and you think of, of how insane that was and, and where I was at in that period and, and, you know, kind of where I've come now. And, you know, it's, it's reflecting on things like that, that are good deterrents to not wanting to go back to that. And, and trust me, there, there are, I think of it every day. There isn't a day that goes by in my life that I don't think of, of potentially going back to using opioids or using stimulants. Um, but all I have to do is follow through to conclusion. And that's where I'm going to end up. You know, there's no question of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are these episodes and you tell them and it's just, it, it's, again, I don't really tell it for shock value. I tell it, you know, to, to demonstrate how deep addiction can truly go. You know, and somebody who's educated, who's a medical professional and, and you know, you'd say, you know, people still ask, you know, you should have known better. You were a pharmacist. Right? I mean, that's crazy. And I say, well, that's addiction. You know, I certainly take responsibility for my actions, but I also have to acknowledge the power of that disease. With all due respect to DSM-5 and any any other numbers upcoming. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is addiction. So, it certainly is. Um, I, you know, right along those same lines, I guess, um, I, I don't know if I'd say most, but many folks uh, utilizing various substances uh, end up injecting them. Yeah. How in the world did you not? Well, you know, I, I dabbled. Um, but, you know, I think it's a very simple answer, Mark. Honestly, it's it's being a pharmacist and having access to what I had um, prevented me from going down that route. I mean, in that 15 year period that I was using, um, you know, there was probably two to three times that I went to a dealer um, to obtain something, um, you know, a local dealer, there, you know, there's a lot of ordering stuff off the internet and, and other things and so forth. But um, I think it was just access to, you know, my, my substances of choice. Um, mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't averse to it because as you'll read in my book, I was injecting anabolic steroids when I was very, very young. So it wasn't a needle thing. I mean, there was a period right. where I got my hands in some injectable Demerol, Meperidine, and was injecting that. Um, but it, it simply wasn't, um, it wasn't necessary. I mean, you, you look at my history or I reflect on my history and, you know, what I was using at the time was what I had access to through either my job um, or, you know, places off the internet and, and being somewhat educated most of the time you knew what you were getting. Um, but there are plenty of times where I didn't know what I was getting and it almost cost me my life. Yeah, that that certainly brings um, brings up thoughts on the whole, the one pill can kill, yeah. call it yeah. a campaign, call it a phrase. Uh, I know our our little Luke is, uh, he, he tells people that he, he's, he's yeah. as you said, educated all of us in healthcare. We, we educate our kiddos too, right? We do. Um, which, you know, by the way, kicking back to what we were talking about earlier, um, uh, our son Luke was not la- named after Star Wars. I get that. <laughs> Good golly. Um, I, just I thoroughly enjoy this Star Wars everything and, and all that. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I actually didn't watch my first one. Hate to admit this until I was 30. Uh, but I can tell you within 72 hours, I watched all the rest of them. So oh, there you go. Um, but but anyways, the, the you know, back to the one pill can kill. Um, oftentimes people say that's eh, an over sensationalization or Others will say, hey, how about we save some folks out there? Um, it, it, it's it's a lot to unpackage, but 
What's the one pill can kill uh, to you? Uh, bring up anything? Yeah. Well, yeah, there, there's two things real quick. I'll, I'll give you a more current one, then I'll give you a, a, a later one. Um, mo- most recently, I, I met with a group of parents in Los Angeles that were literally the victim of that statement mm-hmm. um, who had kids. Um, and we're talking 13, 14, 15, 16 year old kids <clears throat> who through Snapchat had obtained a single pill. These kids didn't really have any history of, of substance use disorder or, you know, extended addiction, substance use, um, you know, got one pill thinking it was oxycodone and it was fentanyl and it, it obviously um, cost them their lives. Um, so it's very, very real. Um, mm-hmm. the, the other later example, and, and this is in my book as well, um, people don't realize that the cartels have been doing this for decades. It certainly hasn't been as prevalent and as common as it is now. But in the early 2000s, I was uh, subject to this. Um, And I had been conversing uh, on the phone with a pharmacy that I was told was in Mexico. And I remember speaking to the gentleman who claimed he was the pharmacist and, and basically saying, what do you want? And I said, well, I'm looking for Adderall. And he said, all right, I got some Adderall, 10 milligrams. Um, go down to Western Union, wire me a hundred bucks and I'll send you a bottle of a hundred of these. And I did so. And the next day I got a, a package in the mail from DHL at the time. I don't even know if they're still in business, but um, <laughs> it, it came and it was these unmarked blue tablets in an unmarked white bottle. And, and you know, they were the similar kind of royal deep blue color of, of generic 10 milligram Adderall tablets, but no marking, no scoring on the tablets. And you know, I, I'm telling this story and I can clearly remember this as, as clear as I'm sitting here today, but I remember kind of looking at them on my desk um, at home in my office and and my normal starting dose of, of stimulants when I would, you know, kind of kick my day off is I would crush up, you know, three or four of them and snort them. Um, and, you know, I remember debating, you know, should I just do that as I usually do or should I be a little bit more cautious and just try one or two? Um, and I said, That's well, you know, moment. I, yeah, I mean, it, it is. And it just, you know, you look back on it and, and just a split second decision, you know, basically saved my life. And I can remember, you know, rationalizing it saying, well, I'll just, I'll start with the two. And if it doesn't work as well, then I'll, I'll kick in another couple. And, um, I can't really tell you what happened. Um, but, uh, my, my ex-wife, um, obviously was married at the time, but she came home from her job about eight or nine hours later and found me on the floor of my office. Um, there was vomit everywhere. I was, I was semi-conscious, um, babbling, um, you know, and, and basically, you know, picked me up and, and, you know, put me to bed and had no idea what happened. And, um, you know, I had access to a friend who worked in a lab who had a mass spectrometer and I, I gave him one of those tablets and, you know, there was, there was fentanyl in it, mm-hmm. um, a, a large amount of fentanyl along with some other things. There was codeine in it. There was merperidine. Um, and, um, you know, I just, I reflect on that. And if I had done one more of those tablets, I, I wouldn't be here doing this podcast. Um, so, you know, it, it's just, it hits you so fast and, and has such an amnesic effect that it's just, you know, you talk about one pill can kill. I mean, it's a powerful statement, but it's also an understatement. Right. It It's, um, man, there, there's just so much that, that comes up within all of that. It, it's, yeah. I know even within um, family or community discussions, I, I always say, um, you know, little moments, little decisions, 
yeah. big consequences. So absolutely. Well, you know, uh, hindsight tells us lots and all that, but thank goodness for you, right? Yeah. Um, Amen to that. I, I, I nowhere near that that caliber, of course. But uh, I actually recently had a, a high school friend reach out uh, via Facebook, you know, for what it's meant to connect people across yeah. time zones or whatever. Um, it was sending positive vibes for you know trying to make a difference in the world. He's, he's uh, one of our pain pod listeners, and uh, saw some posts on LinkedIn and and whatnot. But it uh, turns out uh, he's a biology teacher at the school that that we both attended, uh, and want to know if he should bring this this one pill can kill thing up with his students. Yeah, folks, can you guess what my answer was? Uh, now we want to you know we want to at least attempt to avoid profanities on podcasts, of course. But uh, I'll just go with a heck yeah, Billy. Easy answer, right? Yeah. And I hope that's the case for everyone. So, yeah. all right, Jake. Here, here's uh, here's something I ask every pain pod guest. Um, I, how do you define pain? Wow. Uh, how do I define pain? I, I define pain as discomfort, as anything that you feel out of the ordinary, whether it's emotional or physical. Um, something that just makes you feel not normal. Um, it's not necessarily just a physical thing. And mm -hmm. I think we tend to forget that, um, the emotional aspect of pain, um, is just as much a part of it, if not more than the physical aspects. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I would define it. It, it is discomfort that is unbearable, um, for whatever reason. You know, I, I usually have the succinct question and there's a much longer answer by anyone, quite frankly, even myself. Yeah. I really uh, appreciate extracting out your your one word there, discomfort. Good yeah. golly. Um, we don't always need paragraphs, right? No. <laughs> That's very, very well put. So, all right. So uh, in the realm of pain management, uh, substance use disorder as well, uh, you know, hot topic out there. Uh, it's actually the, the uh, idea of our last uh, pain pot episode, but buprenorphine, mm -hmm. you know, elevator speech or conversation. Yeah. Right? What would you like to tell the world about buprenorphine? Yeah, I think we need to get over whatever stigma we have towards buprenorphine. Um, and, and that may sound a little bit strong. And, um, you know, the one thing I, I can say from a positive aspect is, is we've clearly gotten better. You know, I've been working in this field for over 12 years now, and, and the stigma related to medication for addiction treatment or MAT has, has, has gone down somewhat. But it's still astounding to me that we have treatment programs all over the country which don't even offer this, um, you know, as a treatment option for patients. Um, you know, certainly not for everybody, but the fact that we're not offering folks the best clinical chance to reduce their risk of overdose and death um, from a healthcare perspective to me is, is completely unacceptable. So I, I hope we can move past that. I think removing the X waiver. Um, you know, is a requirement to be able to prescribe buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder is a step in the right direction in removing that stigma. Um, but that's only a small piece of it. We still need to get clinicians to prescribe it um, and to see those patients, as many of them like to say, um, in their clinics, um, regardless of what their discipline is. So um, I'm just hoping we can we can continue to move the needle forward um and and get more people access to that medication and give them a chance at recovery like i've had 
Sounds like you know what you're talking about, eh? <laughs> so, uh, you know, that was concentrating on the, the most recent pain pot episode. Let's look to a future one here. Keep the combo going. Tell us what's important to know about naloxone in 60 seconds or less. Go. We need it. We need it. There's no other there's no other way to say it. I mean, we, we still have a lot of work to do. If there is one thing that we can do to reduce the risk of overdose and, and ultimately death related to this disease we call addiction, um, specifically for opioids, it's naloxone. Um, and as a profession, I think it's incumbent upon us to be the ones that are ensuring that folks have access to this. So we need to be advertising in our pharmacies. We need to be asking individuals if they want it. Um, I think over-the-counter is a great step in the right direction. Again, it's not going to solve the opioid crisis right, by right. any means. But any way that we can enhance access. Um, I, I came from a treatment center in North Carolina last week, or earlier this week, excuse me. And I've never seen anything like it. There was naloxone taped on every door on every corner, in every bathroom of this facility. Um, in the two hours that I was there, I probably saw about 200 doses just taped at random places around the facility. And I think that's the way we need to start thinking. Yeah, if it's harder to find a defibrillator than naloxone in any given space, we might be onto something. Exactly. <laughs> the whole location thing, good golly. Yeah, well said. All right. Well, before I forget here, uh, something else I always ask our pain pod guests, uh, what's your favorite pain medication? And of course, why? Oh, wow. Um, I, I think I would have to go back to buprenorphine. Um, and and I'll, I'll probably get criticism for saying, you know, opioids here. But, you know, I think buprenorphine is an underutilized pain medication for an opioid. Um, and I think part of that is the stigma related to what it's primarily used for in treating opioid use disorder. But if we we look at medications and we look at risk profiles, especially around opioids, you know, very small doses of buprenorphine um, can have tremendous effects on analgesia and pain relief. Um, and I think we need to do a better job at educating clinicians around this um, and encouraging them when their opioids are an appropriate choice to be able to use it um, because, you know, there's much less euphoria. Um, there's still a risk for misuse and, and potential, you know, opioid um, use disorder with that. Um, but it's certainly less than what we see with other Schedule II opioids. Um, so I've always been a big fan, you know, well before I was a patient um, and well before it was available for opioid use disorder. I was always wondering why we didn't utilize it more. Yeah, it's uh, our, our timeline, at least in our country, but really across the globe too. Um, you know, buprenorphine being, um, you know, both pain management and opioid use disorder, it's it's got a lot to unpackage. Yeah, it's got a lot, a lot of advantages and a lot of things we still need to respect the pharmacology, of course, too. So well put. All right, what, one more here. Um, you know, whether it's in this chat we're having or in your book or you know various presentations and whatnot, uh, you and I certainly like to mention our boys. So, yes. so I'm gonna put my other hat on here. It's a baseball yeah. hat, obviously. So I'm asking as a dad who happens to casually be a pharmacist, mm. how do you have the drug talks with your boys? Yeah, very common question I get, and and for a, a you know a period early in my recovery, um, I was very blunt and honest in saying I don't know. Um, and then I found the opening and, and when that happened for me was when my, my now 13 year old was around seven, um, and we were driving to baseball practice and he saw somebody walking on the side of the, the road who was smoking a cigarette. And he said, dad, why would somebody do that? That seems disgusting. And I said, there's my opening. 
And it was, you know, and my other son was in the car as well. And, and, you know, he was, you know, five, four at the time. And um, we just started having those conversations. Um, I call them breadcrumbs, dropping breadcrumbs. And, you know, I certainly didn't, you know, disclose and go into my deep history at that point, but it, it eventually led in, within a year or two to talk about my own personal history and genetics and and why we are at risk for that. So, you know, I, I tell parents, I say, just look for the opportunities. Um, you know, don't fear that discussion, especially if you have a family history of behavioral health or, or substance use in your own family, um, because those are risk factors. And, you know, that's a pretty, I don't want to say it's benign, but it's it's an easy thing, easier thing for kids to understand that, you know, it's it's hardwired into us. You know, we are at a higher risk than other people. So the decisions that you make in life, you know, have to be weighed very carefully. Um, and, and now we're at the point where, you know, anytime we see a depiction of any sort of addiction or substance use on television or in the movies, uh, my boys will proactively, you know, identify it and we talk about it. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm not saying that's going to work for everybody. Um, but I, I just, I, if you had to pin me down for an answer, I'd say, we look for opportunities, look for those breadcrumbs and, and introduce it a little bit at a time. Big, big time help there for, for all of us parents out there. Couldn't thank you more. It, it's, you know, it's just a carpe diem, taking yeah. those opportunities and having the talks. Exactly. There. Hey, at the very least, it's going to be easier than the birds and bees talks, right? Very um, true. But, uh, you know, you know, another way of looking at it, though, uh, it might be incredibly easier to have the conversation with a child compared to an adult. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All righty. Um, Jake, I, I couldn't thank you enough for our, our conversation here today. And, and uh, quite pleasure. frankly, uh, friendship for, for all this time. But uh, for, for the rest of us here, though, for Pain Pod Nation, I, I hope you enjoyed this. Um, check out other episodes, of course. Um, next one, we're probably going to be uh, talking about opioid antagonists overall, which obviously is going to highlight some of the OTC naloxone pearls, panels, chats, debates, whatever you call it across our country. So folks, uh, as Pain Guy, I just want to say, join us next time on The Pain Pod. If you'd like to join Mark on The Pain Pod, send us an email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. And make sure to share the show and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. Thanks for listening.